All things have passed away. Your love has stayed the same. Your constant grace means the cornerstone. Jesus. 
Jesus, we do love you. We want to know what it means to love you better, to love you more, to love you with our life. Not just when we come to church and sing words off a screen, but to truly grasp what that means as we walk out these doors. To love you back from a heart of gratitude. Just knowing what you've done for us knowing that without you, there was no hope, but you gave us hope and a future. And for that, we are grateful. We sing to you this morning from a heart of gratitude. We want to live our lives in such a way that we can bring glory to you. Not because we feel obligated, but because we feel compelled to because of who you are and what you've done for us. We just can't help it. God, may hearts and lives truly be changed today. Help us not just to check this off the box and go to the next thing, but to truly be here in the moment because you're here with us. We know that. We trust that. Your word says that. and We believe that to be true. So God, as Eric comes to bring your word this morning, just anoint him, inspire him. Let him be your messenger. May your word Come alive in this place today. And may we truly leave here changed because we encountered you. That's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Amen. Have you ever been around someone that uh, tried to sing and they can't? Oh, you, you have. Okay, good. Uh, have you ever been around someone maybe thought they could play an instrument or something? And... Uh, not really their gifting from God. Like, there's only one thing I'm confident everyone has a spiritual gift, which is stacking chairs, which we're going to have you all do at the end of service here in a little bit. But not all of us are gifted. I said, my, my daughter, um, my youngest daughter, who just turned five the other day, let me know my, my gift is not singing. As we were just us in the car, and when no one else is around, I sometimes have fun with them, and I start singing with them. And my, my daughter in the back seat says, Daddy, 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 stop, 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 stop. So what's wrong? She goes, that's bad. You got to love their honesty. They, they say what it is. Like, sometimes we just don't realize. I, I know it, but I sometimes forget even what audience I'm with and what they're going to say to me in a given situation. Um, 
It's funny, you see this on TV shows like American Idol. If you've ever seen the American Idol people come on the show and they sing and you're like, this is bad. <laughs> like, man, um, you know, as Tim Hawkins once said, the Lord gave me the song and they're like, well, maybe you should give it back. <laughs> like, this is not your thing. And sad truth is when it comes to church, we're not exactly exempt from that either, right? I actually have a video of uh, church worship gone bad. So let's watch that real quick. <laughs> I love, I love even the musician tries to keep his praise face on. He's like, I know the Lord said a joyful noise, but man, like this is only joyful to one person in the room right now. Um, I think that's staged, at least I hope it is. If not, I feel a little bad right now. But it's funny, uh, in situations like that, even myself, sometimes we have trouble seeing ourselves as we truly are, don't we? But we have trouble acknowledging maybe something we're not or acknowledging the condition or shape that we're in or, or the skill that maybe we think we have and then someone has to tell us, as they do on American Idol, as Simon Cowell, you know, that was horrendous, you know, like that's the worst thing ever. It, it's hard for us to acknowledge and look at ourselves and admit that maybe we're less than stellar, we're less than perfect, we're less than what we thought we were. Um, as we kind of connect to today's lesson, today's sermon, I... I want to read to you a passage in Psalms 139. In Psalms 139, verse 23 through 24, it says, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. He says, See if there's any offensive way in me. Lead me to the everlasting way. I question, I ask you, if God were to search your heart, your thoughts, and your life, what would he honestly find? Like those deep, dark places that you think no one knows about. Like there's always something in us that we seem like, if people ever knew this side of me, if they ever knew this aspect of me, they would never look at me the same again. Like I just, I couldn't imagine. Or it's a thing that everybody knows, but much like this, we refuse to look at it and acknowledge the condition we're in, the situation we're in. I tell you that because we've been in a series called a new rhythm, as we've talked about how we as a church can come together and create a new rhythm this year and start something together, pursuing the Lord together. In the first week, we talked about finding your rhythm. And can I say, if you have not started, if you're like, man, I miss, I didn't do that. Listen, don't, don't just say, well, I'm three weeks out. It's too late. It's never too late to start. Like, start today. 
But we challenge you to find your rhythm. And then last week, we challenged you to find, to gather your band, start getting people to do this with you because you're never going to find success doing it on your own. It's always meant to be taught, done in the context of community. Anywhere you see in Scripture is supposed to be done that way. But today, is the most challenging thing as we look at is this. is not only we find our uh, rhythm, we, we, we gather our band, but then we sometimes need to change your tune. We need to change the tune that we have and say, you know, maybe maybe there's something that needs to be changed. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to 2 Kings. We've been using an account of a guy named, a king named Josiah as our example to go off of. We've covered 2 Kings chapter 22, and we're halfway through 23. We're going to cover the rest of 23 uh, today. And Josiah was a king who came into his kingship at a young age, at eight years old. His dad died in, in their culture. He, he became king at a very young age, which is just crazy to think about, but the culture he's raised in is just a very dysfunctional situation. His grandfather in, in put in all these cultic worship things inside the church, and his dad carried it on to the point that after only two years of being a king, the people killed him. Like, like listen, we're not going to continue this. And that's how he became king at such a young age. And so he begins to start a new rhythm. It says very early on in chapter 22 that he, he was a man who did what was good in the Lord's sight. He sought after the Lord, and he starts finding his rhythm. He starts gathering his band. And yet, you read 2 Kings chapter 23, we're going to read ultimately 4 through 20. We're going to break it up in chunks. Start with verse 4 of chapter 23. This is then king commanded the high priest Hilkiah, the priest of the second rank, and the doorkeepers to bring out the Lord's sanctuary, all the articles made for Baal, Asherah, and all the stars in the sky. He burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. Then he did away with the adulterous priests, the kings of Judah, had appointed to burn incense at the high places in the city of Judah in areas surrounding Jerusalem. They burned incense to Baal and, and to the sun, moon, constellations, all the stars in the sky. He brought out the Asherah pole from the Lord's temple to the Kidron Valley outside of Jerusalem. He, he burned it at the Kidron Valley. He beat it to dust and threw it to the dust of the graves of the common people. He also tore down the houses of the male cult prostitutes that were in the Lord's temple in which the women were weaving tapestries for Asherah. Then Josiah brought all the priests from the cities of Judah, and he defiled the high places from Geba to Beersheba, where the high places, uh, sorry, where the priests had burned incense. He tore down the high places of the city gates at the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city, on the left side of the city gate. The priests of the high places, however, did not come to the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem. Instead, they ate unleavened bread where their fellow priests uh, were. So we see right here, after all he's done, he begins to start restoring the temple. He starts trying to seek after the Lord. They discover God's word. They discover uh, the Bible. And, and he starts in asking, like, what does this look like? And he gets the people together, and they start committing to living for the Lord together. And then he starts cleaning house after all this. And, and what's interesting is all the location. It says Kidron. The Kidron Valley is an area directly to the east of Jerusalem. So he's cleaning areas inside Jerusalem, outside of Jerusalem. Geba is a place uh, which is modern Jeba, uh, which is six miles north of Jerusalem he's going to cleanse. All the way down to Beersheba, which is the southernmost town of Judah in this area. I mean, archaeologists have actually found dismantled horn altar that they may think destroyed during this time. They have found today these very things that he had destroyed. I mean, the, the point at any rate is he's making it clear that Josiah is purging the entire land of, Jana, of Judah of any kind of foreign worships to other gods. He's cleaning house. The question I had is, what took so long? Like, like what, why now? I mean, like, shouldn't this happen earlier? 
I mean, he's already getting plugged into the church. He's getting creating value that he's starting to read God's word and starting to get plugged in that. He's starting to get community and gather people together. And yet just, just now he's starting to clean house. I mean, think about this. This whole time, this whole time, all's going on. He's going to church. They're talking about God. In the background, there's this pagan altar being worshipped by the God. There's pagan prostitutes being uh, doing their things. And then they have asherah poles where people are literally weaving these cloth materials going over these decorative pieces of these idol worship things. Like, what is going on? But yeah, I, I began to reflect on myself, and I said, don't, don't we do the same thing? We can come value church. We can come value the Bible and do all these things and yet still have idols in our life that refuse to get rid of, right? And let's, let's be honest, a lot of us coming in here today and we were looking at ourselves said, well, maybe I have created this room. I've been reading God's word. I've been getting plugged into the church. I'm finding community. But yeah, I still have those things detestable in my own temple of my life that I'm hiding, that no one knows about. It's kind of like a person with what we just saw who, who, who picks up an instrument and they get a band and yet they're still playing off key everywhere they go. They have all the ingredients, yet they're still just way out of tune. Like there comes a point you have to say, What's going on here? He starts cleaning house. He starts destroying everything. He says, listen, I can't have this in my life anymore. And so let's keep reading verse 10 through 14. It said, he defiled Topheth, which is in Ben-Hinnom Valley, so that no one could sacrifice the son or daughter in the fire to Molech. And he did away with the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun. They had been at the entrance of the Lord's temple in the precincts by the chamber of Nathan Molech, the eunuch. He also burned the chariots of the sun. The king tore down the altars that the kings of Judah had made on the roof of Ahaz's upper chamber. He also tore down all the altars to Manasseh that had been made in the two uh, courtyards of the Lord's temple. Then he smashed them there and threw their dust into the Kidron Valley. The king also defiled the high places that were across from Jerusalem to the south of the Mount of Destruction, which King Solomon of Israel had built for Asheroth, the abhorrent idol of Sidonians. Uh, the Chemosh, the, sorry, lost my spot. Oh, there it is. Adherent idol of Moab, and for Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. He broke the sacred pillars into pieces, cut down the Asherah poles, and then filled their places with human bones. He continues to just tear apart and undo. Now, to give you some background, understand how bad things have gotten. Like, understand, not only in the temple is this stuff going on. You would imagine coming to church and, and seeing over here, oh, we got our Wicca corner over here. You can come and do that. Uh, you, you want some Buddhism? You want to kind of, okay, that, that's over here. Go do that over here. Like, it's just kind of potluck style. Whatever works for you will make it work. I mean, imagine that. But not just that. Everywhere they go inside of Jerusalem and Judah, there's places all over. Uh, they talk about this, and you got to understand how bad these things were. Uh, go ahead and put that picture up. They talk about Topheth and Molech. Topheth was a location, uh, little grain, sorry about that. Topheth was an area at the bottom of Jerusalem where the uh, Hinnom Valley and Kidron Valley connected. And it's a place where right outside the temple, they would come and offer this sacrifice to the god Molech, which we have a picture of right there. Molech was this underworld god that they believed that could give them success in battles. And so what they would do is they would take, and they had this big old brazen bull that was kind of figuratively made like that, and they would heat it up. And so you'd have fires burning up, and they would come and take their firstborn son and place them on the hot hands of Moloch and just sacrifice their son right there. They actually have reports of when mothers would have to come do this, they'd have to play drums so loud to drown out the screams of the child so they couldn't hear what's going on. Can you imagine the detestable situation going on here? Like, like here, here's another thing. For Josiah, this was his uncle that happened to. We just talked about the other day in um, 1 Kings, sorry, 
In 2 Kings chapter 21, verse 6, we learn that his grandpa had sacrificed his own son as a way of doing this, put him on the temple. Can you imagine him saying, hey, yeah, remember when they did that to my uncle? Like, that's how he died. They sacrificed him there. Like, how detestable was this right here? All for what? So you could have victory in war, and they believe this. They, they worship. Like, this is not what God, these are the things they put in place. You have these sun gods they worship. It says it talks about these chariots and these horses. They believe that the, the sun god would ride in uh, with his chariots and his horses. And so they spent all sorts of money having these things just to, to show their worship for him and what's going on. As a matter of fact, the end of verse 13 talks about Mount Destruction, which King Solomon had built. King Solomon, the man who was after, who was God's leader in this time, and yet he builds detestable things in his own kingdom. Why? Because it tells us in 1 Kings 11 that his heart was led astray by his wives, by the foreign wives that God told him not to marry. And he allows them to build these places in, in the high places to worship their gods. There, there's some things you got to understand, this isn't even stuff that Josiah did. These are sins of the father that have cast on and been gone down. I fear sometimes in my own life, like what kind of things in my own life will I pass on to my children that I don't want them to inherit and take on? These certain attitudes, these actions where they look at me and say, well, daddy did this, and they're having to undo the sins of the father. And here Josiah is having to destroy what his grandfather, what even going back to King Solomon put in place. Can you imagine? Yeah, it doesn't stop there. Look at verse 15. It says, he even tore down the altar at Bethel and the high place that had been made by Jeroboam, son of Nebet, who caused Israel to sin. He burned the high places, crushed it to dust, and burned the Asherah. As Josiah turned, he saw the tombs uh, there on the mountains. He sent someone to take the bones out of the tombs, and he burned them at the altar. He defiled it according to the word of the Lord proclaimed by the man of God who proclaimed these things. Then he said, what is this monument I see? That whole situation, you have to go to 1 Kings chapter 13 to understand the context. I'd love to unpack more, but I encourage you to go read that on your own. It says, the men of the city told him, it is the tomb of the man of God who came to Judah and proclaimed these things that you have done to the altar. It's about the man. That, that guy who's buried there is the man who prophesied that you would do exactly what you're doing here. So he said, let him rest. Don't let anyone disturb his bones. So they left his bones undisturbed with the bones of the prophet who came from Samaria. Josiah also removed all the shrines of the high places that were in the cities of Samaria, which the kings of Israel had made to anger the Lord. Josiah did the same thing to them. That had been done at Bethel. He slaughtered on the altars all the priests of those high places. He burned human bones on the altars, and he turned to Jerusalem. When I was reading this, it's like, what's the big deal with Bethel? You see him starting in Jerusalem in the temple and him going to Judah and then going to Bethel. You have to understand geographic location. I think we have a picture maybe of that. Jerusalem is that central hub. This would have been the home. This would be, imagine Deer Creek right here is where we're at. And as they keep going, they said, we know we need to clear all of Oklahoma of this. Like, we just can't have this. And they said, you know what? Texas kind of stinks too. Let's go address that issue down there. Kind of tongue-in-cheek joking right there, but that's what he's doing. Bethel is a place, was another place where people ultimately could still run to and worship these other gods. In 1 Kings 13, it's Jeroboam who instills this altar in Bethel. Because he wants to make a stage of coup to become king of Israel. And he realizes, listen, if these people go back to their God and start worshiping their God, they might not see me as king, so I'm going to create our own God. And he does that in Bethel. And he's destroying all that. He's destroying any remnants, any place where someone could potentially fall back into this way of life. Something has to change. He starts cleaning house. The question is, is why does Josiah do all this? 
Why, why does he do all of this right here? I mean, this is drastic, right? I and mean, the truth is there's some very biblical truths about sin that you need to understand. The first thing I want to say is this, and you got to hear me. Listen, everyone, everyone struggles with it. Every person, if you were in this room, you were breathing, you were thinking or not thinking, whatever right now, listen, everyone struggles with sin. Romans 3.23 tells us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Your beautiful little children that seem so sweet and innocent, can I tell you something? They sin. They're not born innocent. We all sin. And when it comes to sin in our life, we respond in one of two different ways. Either one, we recluse ourselves and we go and hide and we isolate ourselves and don't want anyone else to be around us or know what we're doing. We keep it private and keep it to ourselves. Or the other thing we do is we go and find other people that will validate us and make us, we find like-minded people. Listen, if I'm going to struggle with this to make me feel better, I'm going to draw Ian in on this so we can do it together. And that way, I don't feel as bad because I know I have company. If, if, if he could us it and I can convince him, surely it can't be that bad. And don't you see that in today's culture? They're telling us time and time again, like, it's not bad. Look, everybody's doing it. Like, it's not a big deal. If they agree, they agree, it's all okay. And we respond in one, two different ways to sin. We do that. We isolate ourselves or we drag others down with us. But everyone struggles with sin. Another thing you have to understand when it comes to sin is every sin, listen, does hinder our relationship with the Lord. Every sin. Every little thing you do. Here, there's a passage in Isaiah chapter 59, verse 1 and 2, where it says, more or less says, God is not deaf. He says, like, God's not, not, he can't, not like he can't hear you. He says, but your iniquities are separating you from your God in your sins. Listen to this. Have hidden his face from you so that he does not listen. Is that crazy? Like, your sins literally makes it this God's like, I'm not going to listen to a word you say with that sin in your life. Our prayers are crying out, hey, God, would you, God's like, listen, nah, -uh, not, not until you deal with this. As a matter of fact, Psalm 66, 17 through 18 says, I cried out to him with my mouth, and praise was on my tongue. Like, I was worshiping God with my tongue. It says, if I had been aware of malice or sin in my heart, the Lord would have not listened. God's like, I don't even want to accept your praise with that wickedness in your life. Listen, it's like this. Sometimes we think our little sin is cute and innocent, and God's like, that's the very thing that's going to separate you from me. It's not cute. It's not petty. It's not little. It's not innocent. I think of a situation in pop culture today. You have a famous singer named Justin Timberlake who just got caught in a situation where he went out to lunch with another lady that was not his wife, and they caught photographs of him holding her hand. And it's been this ramification thing. Now look, they try to come off and say, well, it was nothing. It was innocent. This is not this man's wife, and he's holding her hand. If I do that, my wife, like, hey, listen, it's sweet. No, it's not sweet. It's not innocent. It's not just petty. It's not little. It means something that's important. And yet we come to God and say, listen, it's just a little sin. It's just a little thing. I have every other area of my house in order but this one thing. And God's saying, but that one thing is separating you from me. And I will not listen until you confess until you acknowledge, like, until you come and say, listen, what's going on? And so everyone struggles in. Every sin hinders our relationship with the Lord. But the beauty of Scripture, this, and the beauty of the gospel is this. Every sin is forgivable and conquerable. Everyone. 1 John 1, 9 says, if you confess your sins to the Lord, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. In other words, Christ has paid the penalty on the cross. If we confess, listen, he has to and he wants to forgive us and he will. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, elaborates about this need to confess, and God will forgive us. God wants to forgive us. God wants us to be conquerable over the sins in our life. But you have to understand, there are terms to his forgiveness. Sometimes we say grace is free. It is free, but it also costs you something. It's not just something you say, well, I'm just going to take and not give. It means you're going to have to trade something. It's going to be an exchange in action. Something 
has to change. As a matter of fact, in Scripture, the words you see over and over come up is this idea of true repentance. True repentance has to happen. Repent's kind of a church word we use. It means to turn, but more so it means this. It means to change your mind on the way it is. And we're trying to do today is it's to change your tune on the situation at hand. It's not a beautiful noise. It's not, it's not good. It, it, something has to change. You see, when it comes to repenting in biblical, when you see in the Bible, it's about in our heart and our actions. It's about in our heart changing. In Acts 26.20, Paul says this. He says, I preach to all the people this message, that they should repent and turn to God and do the works worthy of repentance. Do you know what the difference is between true repentance and just uh, feeling sorry? There's a difference. There's a difference between saying, sorry I got caught and sorry that I've sinned, Right? There's a difference when I've wounded my wife and saying, you know what, because she has caught me in an act or something that I know I should not be in and be doing and saying, I'm sorry and I mourn because I got caught and my life is rough right now because of what you caught me in versus I'm sorry that I broke your heart. I, I, have, I have wounded you. And there's a, there's a stark difference. And yet a lot of us come to the Lord because we want good things. We want the benefits and blessings of God, but we don't understand we've broken God's heart in the process. And repentance says, listen, my bad. Like, I, I, I've wounded you. And, and, my, and because of that, listen, I, I want my life to change. Like, I, it hurts me to hurt you to the point that I, I don't want life to be the same. When you see Josiah, can I just tell you, well, how does he repent? How does he change his tune? Well, his, his heart was changed. You, you see in uh, 2 Kings chapter 22, verse 11 and 19, when they come and tell him, and he realizes all the things he does, does wrong, he says he tore his clothes. Like, he literally like, oh, my gosh, what have I done? To the point that God says in verse 19, says, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before the Lord. He said, because you torn your clothes and wept before me, I've heard. You've repented. You've acknowledged that you just don't feel like, man, I, I, I mean, I'm going to get in trouble. It's like, I, I've wounded, I've, I've, I've messed up. I've wounded the heart of God. So true repentance means we change our hearts, but it's also our actions. Something has to drastically change. What changed with him? I think it's so interesting. Look at what he does when he cleans house. He, he removes all the things that were in the temple, right? Every little thing that's going to cause him to stumble. Like, listen, that thing over there, that's a worship thing. Or like, I, if I walk in the temple, like, that's going to cause my heart. We have to get rid of that. I can't have that anymore. And that right there, that's a memory. Every time I see that, it reminds me of when I worshiped that God or did that thing. I, I can't have that in my life anymore. He tore down every little thing that would cause him to stumble. Anything says it's not worth it anymore. He removed every relationship. He tore, took out the people in his life. He said, listen, we can't have these other priests. They're going to lead my heart straight. These people are going to drag me in their life and say, listen, just come follow me. It's okay. I have to remove these relationships from my life. And not just that, he burns everything down and he scatters their dust everywhere. He removes the memories of it. That's kind of weird, right? We can't remove the memories. But we can change the way we look at it, can't we? We can remove how we process it. We can change how we view them. How often when it comes to our old way of life do we romanticize the old way of life, don't we? You ever been? I've been like that. Like, listen, man, God's changed me, and yet when we talk about our old way, man, I remember when I was in college, man, I wasn't chasing the Lord. But God, I'll tell you, like, it was, it was, we act like that was the best time ever. We romanticize our old sin like it's a cute thing. Like, man, I remember I did all this sort of stuff. It was so bad, but God's changed me now. But we make it sound like, man, woe is me. I'm missing the good old days. Instead of looking back and saying, woe is me. Like, what was I doing back then? It's changing the way we view. 
Listen, can I tell you something for you when it comes to your relationship with the Lord? You're going to have to make some drastic changes in your life. And you might hear this like, well, listen, I, you're saying I'm going to change a lot. It seems pretty drastic. Listen, Matthew 5.21, he, 5.29, he says, if your right eye, Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. He says, for it's better you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. It's not worth it. This stuff's not worth it. If you don't understand why it's not worth it, you don't understand how great and good God truly is. It's like a young man I counseled a few years back, and he was struggling with looking at inappropriate images. It was causing a rift in his marriage. And I said, talk to him. I said, man, I said, where are you struggling? He goes, I'll be honest, it's with my phone. When I'm alone, I have my phone. I just find myself struggling. And I said, can I tell you something? You, you might have to get rid of your phone. He's like, I can't do that. I mean, I use my phone for everything. I said, well, you're going to have to choose. Do you want a wife or do you want a phone? It's pretty simple. Like, you have to decide what you value. Do, do, I, do I want God or do I want all this other stuff in my life that I keep pursuing? Something has to drastically change. He says, listen, if it's going to cause you sin, gouge that thing out and get rid of it. It's not worth it. And too many of us walk, away with, walk around with sin and think, because I have 90% of my life good, the 10% God will ignore if I live good enough in all these areas, this one little thing, it's not a big deal. And God's called us and said, no, listen, these things are causing issues. And so when it comes to you, how, how do I change my tune? For you, can I say, listen, here, here's, let's get real practical. It's simple. Confess your sins to God and to others. Confess your sins to God and to others. The areas that you know, whether big, small, whatever, if you think it's going to change people's perspective on you, it doesn't matter. James 5.16 says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. Healing comes from telling other people. It needs to be specific. Can I tell you something? Your secrets can no longer be secrets anymore. For years, I prayed to God, forgive me. Forgive me for my actions. Forgive me for this thing in my life that if anybody knew about it, man, they would never look at me the same again. And it wasn't until I actually confessed it to someone I loved and cared for before something changed in my life. Because I needed encouragement. I needed accountability. I needed something to change. And we don't want to do that. Why? Because it, it takes a bite of our pride. What, what, what will they think when they look at me different? What will it look like when I walk this aisle and people say, what are they walking up for? I wonder what they're doing. We don't want to be talked about. You see, can I tell you something? When it comes to confession, it needs to become a lifestyle, not an event. It needs to be something you get with people on a weekly basis and say, listen, I'm struggling today. I need you guys to pick me up. Not, yeah, I remember when I confessed my sins, you know, July 9th. 1999, man, that's a day for, no, listen, every week, every day I need to come and say, listen, devil can't touch me because I've confessed and I've dealt with this and I'm working through it. But yet in the church, we're so scared to look less than perfect. We're so scared to let people know our weakness because that's where God's going to edify us. And so what does Satan do? Create a place where we come and all look perfect and all look good and we leave just as lost as when we came in. Something has to change. And so you have to confess your sins to God and acknowledge, listen, I've broken your heart and I need help. The second thing we have to do, and this is the hardest thing for most of us, is we need to remove the things that cause us to sin. You, you need to clean house. You need to come in your life and say, there's nothing going to be in my house, in my relationships, in my walks of life that's going to allow me to stumble again. It has to change. You're only as strong as your weakest moment. In the moment that you have this thing in your life, you have that temple, that place in the corner where you could potentially go back. You have that Bethel, the area just the north that's a little bit of work, but you know at your weakest moments you're going to make that jog up there to go and worship those things. Listen, it's going to come back. 
you have to clean house. I can't let this thing be in my life anymore. Drastic changes take drastic measures. This is not a popular sermon today. I know that, okay? But I, I preach this because this is, this is what changed my life. I've shared with you about me talking to my wife and confessed to her, man, it's broken. I'm broken right now just thinking about it. For years, I hid. Trying to think, you know what? I'll just deal with it myself. I can take care of it. I'll handle it. So finally, I came to the point that I was just so broken. I went and sat down with her. I said, you know what? I confessed to her everything. God healed me that day. I confessed to someone. I confessed to God, and I said, listen, I've broken that I've hurt you. I've broken that I've hurt God's heart. Like, something has to change. I can't keep doing this. For 13 years, I've been living alive, and I get in front of kids preaching every single week, and yet I'm just such a hypocrite. She's had me, and I'm convinced she's going to leave me. She looked at me, and she says, hey, we'll, we'll get through this. Like, let's, let's do this together. And God showed me grace through her and through him, and God changed my life. I began to walk in freedom like I've never had before. I began to find freedom that if I, I miss a Bible study, like God loves me. Like I don't have to be perfect. God loves me. I found grace and forgiveness. And here's the thing that really changed. Listen, for when we knew it was real, because I said, I said, listen, I, I can't have these things in my life anymore. We, we're going to have to clean house. We literally got rid of movies that I knew that would be stumbling blocks for me. I had to put apps on my phone so I could never longer look at stuff I know I couldn't do. We had to put TV blockers. Anytime we want to watch something on TV, I have to get, me and my kids, I have to get my wife to turn it on for us. It's embarrassing. It's humbling. But listen, I don't go back to those old altars anymore. God's broken me and changed me. And listen, it took drastic measures. And it took a bottom of my pride. But listen, nothing was more freeing. And yet some of you guys are still walking away in the same shame and guilt and self-cycle that I was for years thinking, I'll fix myself. And once I get it, once I, once I get it just down good enough, once I get three, six months down the road and I, I'm not struggling anymore, I'll tell someone and, and it'll, be a, it'll be a joy story, not, not a story of redemption anymore. Like, I'll do it myself. And yet we find ourselves, Satan gets us, and we fall back to those patterns. I came out of that and found friends. I found some guys I confessed with in my church and said, listen, I'm struggling. Would you guys help me? We started a men's Bible study about dealing with addiction and how we come out of that and how we process that. Something that I still do this day, every week, meet with guys every single week. I've done it for the past eight years. I can't do it on my own. I, keep making, I make mistakes, and we find out how we have to keep tearing down altars in my house. But yet God finds victory after victory after victory after victory in my house because I'm, I want to repent. I don't want to do it anymore. Praying that our church would do that too. I'm praying that you do that too. Because can I tell you something? This is something I didn't get for a long time. Good people don't go to heaven. Change people go to heaven. And if you're thinking you can live good enough and you can be good enough, you're, you're never going to make it. Not because God doesn't love you, not because God can't redeem you, it's because you refuse to let go of those altars. You refuse to change your tune. You refuse to acknowledge that, listen, this tune, this tone I'm playing is out of key. I'm just going to keep playing it. Something has to change. And so the invitation today is this, is, is to change your tune. Now, I, I, I've prayed for a different outcome today. If someone would walk off, someone would get up in the back here in a second, elders, if you guys make yourself up and go talk to one of them and say, listen, I'm struggling. 
But the truth is, in Deer Creek and Mary, in just America period, we got a pride situation. We think, I don't want anyone to know that I'm less than perfect. Listen, I'm less than perfect, but God has redeemed me and made me into something. And God can do the same for you. It's going to take you standing up and saying, I need help. And talking to someone. Living a life of repentance. It's where you're at, where you're at. That's my my prayer. If you're waiting for me to come and beg and please you, listen, you're going to be sitting there for a while. Get up now and go talk to one of these men. Find someone next to you and say, I need to confess. I need help right now. If you've never asked the Lord into your heart, listen, you need repentance. You need salvation. That's what you need. It's not growing up in a church. It's not being a good person. It's coming to the Lord and saying, God, I'm not good enough, but I need your gift of salvation. I need your gift. Here's my old life. I want the new you. Take me. If you have not done that, listen, you are not a Christian. It's all there is to it. I'd love to tell you something else. I'd love to validate you and make you feel good about yourself. The truth is you have to give yourself to God and say, God, I want you to be the Lord and Savior of my life. Take me. It's yours. If you're not going to do that, you're going to walk through life, come here every single Sunday, pretend and playing a game, and we're going to pat you on the back as you try to live something out that you know you're not. So let today be different. I'm going to ask you where you're at. Just bow your heads, close your eyes, and spend a second praying. If you feel convicted, you feel led, if you're like, man, I need to talk to someone, get them, go. We got Tony back here. We got Pete back here. Go talk to one of these men, please. If you have a spouse or a loved one next to you, you know that's the person. Listen, can I tell you? It's hard, but find the confidence to tell them right now, listen, I'm dealing with something. I need your help, and I pray you'd forgive me. I need God's forgiveness. You do that. You respond now. God's leading you, you get up. God's leading you to talk to someone, you talk to someone. You do it now, don't wait. Holy Spirit, here's my heart. Every hatred, hidden part. All the pain and all the pride. I'm held so deep inside. You are here. You are holy. You are welcome. In this place, Holy Spirit, hear my prayer. When the fear is all I've known, to know that you are near, I'll never be alone. You are here. You are holy, you are welcome in this place. Won't you be my shelter? Won't you be my guide? Won't you be my prince? After everything I've tried, I turn to you. God, you are good. God, I know there's people in here that, I don't know why it is, they won't get up. They 
I won't go talk to someone. Maybe they're just going to do it afterwards. God just, I pray for conviction until it leads to something in their life. I pray they wouldn't spend years of their life like I did playing a game. God, you're good. Thank you so much for redeeming those lives. God, change the tune of our church. Change our heart. Change our minds to pursue you, to love you, to be broken when we've hurt you, and to celebrate and desire salvation for people to come experience the same truth, the joy that we have, the freedom that we have. You are worth so much more than what I give. I pray for our church. Guide us during this time. God, I pray for the offering that we take to ushers to get in place. God, I pray we would give out of faithfulness to, to who you are. God, for our church members who are called to give uh, to the church, God, I pray that they would give. God, for the guests who are here, I pray they feel no obligation. They put money in. This is not about us taking money from them. This is about us being faithful stewards of what you've given us. So God, we give in faith. Continue, God, this time of repentance, God, I pray continue working my life, working others, and God, I pray that this year would be different. I praise you in all things. In Jesus' name, amen.